0: We're still in John 9. and <laughs> If you'll turn there, I want to look at something else here that, uh, you know, I, I, I try as I pray and as I meditate to say, God, what would you want me to say? What would you want me to teach that would be helpful for us in our understanding as well as helpful in us in our living uh, to be able to be more faithful in our following of you? And, I, you know, I've had times where I just lay uh, passages out and say, well, that's the next one. And I remember hearing a guy years ago, he said, you know, there's a... Often a difference for preachers and teachers uh, who have a uh, have a teaching or they have a message, <laughs> and what I'm always trusting that I have is a message, something that I hope and trust that God has kind of put down in me and is working in me, and so I get the joy of learning and repenting before I ever get here, <laughs> you know, and and said, "Ooh, ouch!" You know, I get to do that, and then uh, to try to share with you uh, some things that I think would be helpful. Uh, in your journey and in my journey, and we've been uh, continuing in this uh, matter about these conversations with Jesus. This uh, miracle in John chapter nine, we've been looking at uh, the healing of the blind man, is one of the largest uh, accounts of any uh, miracle in all of the Gospels. It's huge. I mean, the the first week we looked at this, I thought there. I said I said to myself, I said, "There's no way I'm going to get through this," and I know people said, "Amen." You know, uh, uh, I thought they're just. You know, there's just so much here. And and so I, I'm fascinated by this chapter. I hope you're turning there. You know, there are some things here in John chapter 9 that are wonderful. I mean, I, I, I wrote a couple things down. I say, you know, we've seen through this uh, miracle uh, so, something wonderful that Jesus uh, cared uh, for this man born blind in the context uh, even disregarding his own safety. Remember, end of chapter 8, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to kill Jesus. And we said that Jesus cares more about you than he cares about himself. And I know that with the cross and all those kind of things. But right here, that, that Jesus reveals uh, a lack of, if you will, concern for his own life. Uh, they want to kill him. And he is walking out and sees a blind man and, and heals him. That's remarkable to me. Um, it's wonderful to see what we saw last week, that how this man in his being born blind uh, and being healed, that he begins by understanding Jesus as a man. He progresses to seeing Jesus as a prophet in this chapter, and he finally declares him to be the Son of Man, and, and falls down and worships him. Uh, Eden Fadkin said something I thought was really smart. She's sitting up here, so I can remember. Uh, she said, "You know, Cliff, uh, that's what we do with our children. That we don't demand of our children that they first understand Jesus is Son of God and become a Christian. We help them understand that He's our friend." Uh, yeah yeah that he cared about us that he, yeah these kind of, and, and and we do that with our children, and we do that with people that we 're trying to help them progress we don 't go for the throat all the time to just say you got to believe he 's a son of God or we 're done here uh, and so I, I, to me that that 's fascinating uh, there is some disturbance in this uh, chapter for me and and the disturbing thing for me is as we work through today more that really it begins with a man born blind uh, this this man who 's had this miracle, and it ends. If you will, with a declaration of who 's really blind, and that is the religious leaders they 're the ones who are really blind, not not this guy born blind, he is now seeing and rejoicing and, and living life but but it 's fascinating to me that the disturbing thing is that 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 there is this idea that that really the, the Pharisees are the ones who are blind. In fact, look at chapter nine verse forty here, and we 'll go backwards i I know that 's weird that 's the way I teach them. Uh, try to hold the context in, in in John chapter 9 verse 40 at the end of this those Pharisees who had who had who were, who were with him <clears throat> excuse me there were there are Pharisees that were with this blind man when he came to Jesus <clears throat> and they're still in the temple area when they heard this they said to him we're not blind too are we isn't that interesting <clears throat> we're, we're not blind too or blind also and what's interesting <clears throat> about greek is it has the capacity to write a sentence Uh, in which uh, you know the answer. Uh, You know, I've seen this in movies. You know, a French person, uh, we are not going there, are we? You know, and uh, that's bad. I know, sorry. (coughs) I don't watch many movies. (coughs) You know, I I know, I know, I know. I don't watch many movies, okay? I don't like movies because you can't talk at them. You know, people don't appreciate that very much. I never have understood that, but... In Greek, you can ask the question in a way, that says, we are not blind, are we? And the answer to that is, it's written in such a way, they expect the answer to be no. You can write it, you know, I'll give you the technical terms you want to later. But it can be written in such a way where it's clearly written or stated that they're expecting a no answer and Jesus says, yes, you are. You really are blind. You really are blind. And so it's fascinating that Jesus brings these guys around to say, the real problem is you're blind. This is why you're reacting the way you are. This is why you're living the way you are. And so I, I want to look at this. La- I'm not going to make a promise. <laughs> My intention is to never teach in nine again this year. Um, be, because I think there's, a, there's an organic relationship between nine and ten. We're going to look at the good shepherd next week. That, that Jesus declares he's the good shepherd. Because these religious leaders who are supposed to be the shepherds have been so bad. That, that's, that's kind of a, 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 a teaser for next week. But that that the that Jesus is the good shepherd, and he's going to show himself in direct, if you will, contrast with the religious leaders of that day who have been terrible. And we'll see that. And one of the reasons they're terrible, in my judgment, is because of this. Is because of the rigidity that they have that blinds them. The rigidity. That blinds them. I I had a professor in in college. He's still alive, so I shall not say his name. And he might hear this. He was so rigid in what he did and was so wound up in what he did. When we would have chapel at our school, and we did three times a week back then, and we'd have chapel. Chapel was supposed to end at a certain time. And then you would um, you would go to class. And uh, so uh, we would have chapel. So any time chapel went over, I mean, you know, if the Spirit of God was working like crazy and people are on their face repenting and uh, crying out to God, he left as soon as chapel's over. Instantly, because that's when chapel's supposed to be over. I say that's a little rigid. He then, it gets better. He then would go into class, Don Medley and a buddy of mine and others, We took Greek, uh (laughs) uh-oh, Greek professor. Anyway, hypothetically, let's say. uh, So our Greek professor would walk in the room, and we saw this, this happened. And he would, Dave, you know, he he would stand in the room with nobody in there and start lecturing. it gets better. <laughs> My buddy Don gets in there before the rest of the people do. Don gets in there, walks in, sets down. The professor looks up and sees him and says this, Welcome, Mr. Medley. We're on page 37. And Don goes, Who is we? <laughs> That's a little rigid, wouldn't you say? I mean, is it important to teach people Greek and and have them go through the grammar and all that other material. Mean, well, sure. I mean, obviously, you don't want people making up their own rules in Greek grammar, and and you want to learn that. But, but here is a here's a rigidity. Here's a here's a level of rigidity that you go, man. You need to see somebody about this. You know, I mean, really, right? That that there is a rigidity that goes too far. It, it's a rigidity that I would suggest uh, uh, really causes problems. As I'm getting older, I you know my own flexibility is getting worse. I. I'm like Tony Campolo, I don't know if you heard this or not, but Tony Campolo always says that if he ever reaches down to tie his shoes, he always asks himself, "Is there anything else I need to do while I'm down here?" <clears throat> Everybody with me? <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't get right back up. You have to say, "Well, is there anything else to do down here?" You know. Flexibility. We 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 lose that in our bodies. You know, in our in our muscles. And I have a good friend who's an eye doctor, and. Uh, I asked him uh, he's in a Bible study I lead and and uh, we talked about how the eye uh, presbyopia I I don't know if presbyterians alone can get that though but uh, presbyopia which is the idea of uh, long sightedness it really is where the eyelid gets stiff and less elastic and it it gets more difficult for the for the lens in the eye to change so so inflexibility can not only make you kind of weird in a classroom can not only make you Uh, unable to do things you used to be able to do easily by tying your shoes. It sometimes uh, creates problems in our vision. Uh, The inflexibility. Uh, Ben told me that the number one cause for reversible blindness in the world is cataracts. And cataracts are when the lens becomes harder and less flexible, so the transparency is affected. So there's a lack of flexibility in the eye. There's a lack of flexibility in the lens To be able to see. So, you know, flexibility can be simple as uh, Campolo laughing and cutting up. Or flexibility can really be something that uh, can cause us some real problems. So I want to look at some inflexibility here that I think that is a rigidity. A rigidity, uh, an inflexibility in life, uh, a refusal to be flexible to some extent. Uh, in that way. Now, uh, let's say this. you know, Flexibility and, and being open to things in religious terms is not an easy thing to do. You know, we have things we believe and <clears throat> things that we know and we want to be clear. But there is a rigidity, I think, or an inflexibility that sometimes sets up in people. It's happened to me. Sets up in us that really begins to cause us to not be able to see. Not as clearly as we should. Not as, I, I tell my students this. What you know, you know. But what you know is not all there is to know, you know? Right? Right? right. I mean, what you know, you know. But what you know and what I know is not all there is to know. and And that should create some flexibility in us to say, let's allow ourselves to grow and develop and not get to the point that everything is nailed down in every way for us not to say, is there some flexibility? So I want, I want to look at that in this rigidity that blinds. Number one, I think there's a rigidity of conformity, or rigid, rigid conformity. Let's look here in chapter 9. You'd say, Cliff, it would be nice to get to the Bible here. Um, in chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 13, they, we're not exactly sure who they are, brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. Now, now that, you know, that, that's a statement here to say, okay, why? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. Well, the question here is this. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Uh, you know, there's a sense here in which uh, the, the Pharisees, and we do this as well, is to where there becomes a rigidity about things where we would say... This is the only way to keep the Sabbath. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus 35, if you want to go read some of that, Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 35, give some inkling as to what some of these things might mean. But the question here is when they say, this man does not keep the Sabbath. I just want us to think about this for a minute, about this matter. The Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments where the rest was, if you will, that was to be that you were to rest, your family, your animals, your the, the foreigners, all the people that were in your uh, extended family. It was to be a day of rest. Now what's happened is, throughout time, is that really I would suggest if you go look at 613 laws that the Pharisees created uh, to keep you from breaking the law, if, if, if you got away from all of their details of how they believe this is the only way to understand this, I would I would argue that... that that, that the Sabbath might be one of the least restful days of the week. Just think about that for a second. How unrestful would it be to be frightened to death that whatever you did might oh it might be work and I you know if you want to read this uh, from Maimonides and some other of the Jewish uh, writers and uh, people it gets comical it gets comical of how Pharisees and religious leaders determine determine, how you can actually get something done, but not work. For instance, if you are a tailor, if you have a pen in your jacket, not a pen. I'm from East Texas. A pen can be something you get stuck with, or something you write with. A friend of mine from New York says it's a pen. It's a pen. If you're a tailor, if you're a tailor, and you happen to be walking around in your house on the Sabbath, and there's a pen that you forgot in your jacket you just broke the Sabbath now if you're not a tailor you can have a pen go figure if if you need to draw water and you can't use a rope because it would be considered work you can use and I won't go into detail here you can use some women's undergarments for the rope and get the water out I didn't make the rule I've just explained it okay this is where it gets crazy, right? Now I'm not I, I'm not trying to be unkind, but here, here's an example. I, at least I thought, my my folks lived in Ohio uh, several years ago. My dad called me up one day. He was 62. He's living in, in Albuquerque, and said, "We're thinking about moving to Cleveland." And I said, "Who is this?" <laughs> Nobody moves from Albuquerque to Cleveland, right? We went up there. And we went up in that area, and it was Amish country. Some of the best food I've ever eaten. And as we looked at that, I was talking to my dad, and I said, you know, Dad, isn't it interesting how that the Amish decided that the conformity that they wanted was everybody wear the same kind of clothes, everybody wear black, and, you know, because we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. (laughs) How's that working Listen, their tour buses where God... Now, here they are over here. See them? That's all, that's some Irish people right over there. You see what happens? Conformity. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves, but we're not about to determine if this is working or not. But these guys are saying Jesus isn't keeping the Sabbath because He healed a guy. That, that kind of rigid conformity. Now, the question would be, is he not keeping the Sabbath based on the Pharisees' understanding? Is he not keeping the Sabbath on the Sadducees' understanding? Or is he not keeping the Sabbath on the Essenes' basis? There are at least these three groups. And then there are, you know, partridge in a minute pear tree all over the place. I mean, there are all kinds of these groups and sects and ideas. Well, who, whose idea? So, well, just read the Bible. I, okay but I know lots of people that get confused <laughs> and, and, and say, well, that's what it means. Or that Here, Here's the idea. Is, is it a rigidity that helps us to maintain the reality? Or is it a rigidity that finds itself just conforming? Just conforming to the matter. Uh, th- these guys are saying, Jesus does not keep the Sabbath. He doesn't do what we do. He doesn't live like we live. And so it, it, as a result, he's a sinner. Let me, let me explain it this way, another way. One of the core teachings of the Bible, there are many, is that God's people gather to worship him, right? That, that's a core idea. We all agree with that, I think, that you know we, we may. But, but what gets difficult is when we get so rigid that we think there's a particular way to do it. Right? That we think, okay, we forget. I want to give you two words here. Here's the thing. It's called, let me get it out of my notes, make sure I don't don't get this goofed up. It's, uh, there it is. Here is the principle and the practice. In the Bible, the principle is worship. The practice has emerged and evolved for centuries. Right? So the the principle is where we want to stay. But where we end up taking people into conformity is over here. We we, we don't ask, are you genuinely, is your heart genuinely attempting to worship God and honor Him and praise Him? Or is your attempt to honor the Sabbath, to to have a day of rest? Is that what you're trying to do? Or are you just in trouble over here? The church has had trouble with this. For centuries, that we forget what the you know the other one the other one is evangelism. That's a principle throughout Scripture. That, that's a non-negotiable, right? That, that we tell other peoples about Jesus. Peoples, other people, right? How we do it has changed remarkably. I remember when I was a, a in in school, at, we did a thing called bus ministry. Wasn't really bus ministry; it was kids ministry. We weren't going to get buses; we were going to get kids, but we used buses. That'll get back there in a minute. So, <clears throat> and I know people today that have said to other churches, "If you're not still doing bus ministry, you don't love Jesus, and you don't care for the lost." What's happened? The conformity over here. See, when, 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 when we talk about the Sabbath, we're talking about honoring God, like on the Sabbath. But can you honor God on the Sabbath and then treat your brother terribly on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? You know, we can lock this stuff down into some kind of conformity if we want to. But I, you know, I, I I wrote this in my notes. I said, you know, here's where the problem is: the rigidity expresses itself this way that we're more concerned about what people have in their refrigerator than they are what they have in their heart. Right? We're more concerned about people in their refrigerator than we are what they have in their heart. So the practice is what changes, and how it evolves, and how it works. Instead of saying, look, here's the principle. Jesus honoring His Father, Jesus honoring, giving rest to a man who had struggled with, if you will, blindness all of his life. So the rigidity here, we talk about this, the best way to baptize. There's only one way, right? (laughs) Not hardly. There's only one way to worship. There's only one kind of music. I remember in our church, uh, the Church of God, which you're a part of, uh, and uh, 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 a guy that was in our church for a long time ago talked about how that when we first came into existence in 1880, we kind of believed what John Wesley said. How come the devil has all the good music? Right? (laughs) Did you know he said that? He said it a little crazy. He said, why does the devil have all the good tunes? And particularly British. Then Larry Norman took that and wrote a song, if all you rock and roll people know. But, but we decided in the 1880s that uh, all whole notes, the duh, 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 duh was, it's cool if you like that. But we were going to sing a different way. And we did something called, this is ungodly now, the dotted quarter note. <laughs> Gave it a little swing. Did you know when this church, okay, who goes to 11 besides me? Sometimes when we sing a hymn, you know, whenever there's a key change, that's a hymn, right? It's always a hymn. Key change, okay, we just went to a hymn. Do you know that when those some of those hymns we are singing today, in the 1880s, were considered heretical? Music, you didn't do that. You didn't use dotted quarter note. That was dance hall music. Now we look, oh, we need to get back to the real way of worship. Well, which one? (laughs) Right? So, so Jesus is, is being accosted. The, these guys are, are having all kinds of because of this need for conformity, and I want to suggest to you it's over here, not over here. Does that make sense? I, I'm, not, I'm not asking for to give these things up. I'm not saying let's surrender these matters. I'm saying let's give people some liberty over here and some freedom and quit trying to turn the practice into some divine only way you can do it. So I ask you this question here. We're going to hurry through this. What if this week you reviewed one thing that you do as an expression of your faith in Jesus and ask yourself, is this the only way to express this? Is this the only way to do it? Is this it? Have I, you know, nailed down and figured out? It might enliven you a little bit if you decided, you know, I could still do this a different way. I could still participate in this in a different way model. And it it might in fact enliven you. Instead of just say there's one way to do it, that's why we've always done it and we'll continue to do it. It seems to me to be the way the Pharisees are. So they're more concerned about the outwardness of what they're doing. They're more concerned about the conformity of that. Does that make sense? You You ever struggle with that? You ever struggle with rigidity or conformity and thinking this is the only way it can be done? I remember when I was growing up in college, or growing up, and then going to college. Uh, I remember hearing people say, "Hey, you know, if you're going to have a devotional life, you can only have it in the." Yeah. Is that the only time you can do it? I think it is. I think if you fail, you can't. You have to wait until the next day. You know what? You know what? You know what freed me up? I was reading one day, and I found out that Bill Bright, the person who founded Campus Crusade for Christ had his devotions at night. Of course, he was a Calvinist and that was probably part of it. <laughs> Man, did that free me up. Man, did that free me up to say, you mean you can do that at night? I got news for you. You could actually do it at lunch. I know, let's get crazy, okay? Let's get crazy this week. You could do it anytime. But we've sort of regimented this conformity. So Jesus is in trouble. And I think the issue here is that He's just not honoring the Sabbath the way they do. He's doing it a different way. He's bringing rest to a man who had been born blind. That, that's the kind of thing I think that, that might be uh, important. Okay? Another thing here. Rigid conclusions. I'm just going to walk you through this. Uh, I, I just want you to notice verse 18 the jews did not believe that he had been born blind they they just aren't going to believe it yes what's the distinction between the pharisees and the jews understand? the pharisees thank you are the religious leaders the pharisees would be the religious leaders there're two sects if you will in judaism main one are pharisees <clears throat> who are called the separated ones they would be the conservative wing of judaism they believe in miracles they believe in angels. They believe the law is the embodiment of truth. Then you have the Sadducees. Now, there's an old joke in my head right now. <clears throat> have you heard this one? Yeah. The Sadducees are sad, you see, <clears throat> because <clears throat> because and what's it? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in anything other than right now. They're kind of the political uh, wing. Of Judaism, They're involved in the government. They are running the show in a lot of ways. And so the Sadducees are a much more, if you call, liberalized, uh, more uh, uh, earth-bound group. They're pretty rigid, but they're more interested in what's going on t- today and now. And then the Essenes are the people that said, hey, all of you are so messed up, we're going to the Dead Sea. And those are the guys that went to the Dead Sea and said, we're the only ones going, the rest of y'all are going to hell, right? And so uh, those are the Essenes that are the highest, Highly rigid, highly uh, 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 circumscribed to their own way of doing that. So th- those are and the Jews then are just people that are hanging out, and they're they're be- but they're being led by these people. They're being led and they will associate with uh, e- e- either one of those parties. Thank you. Yeah. Did, well, do you have a follow up? Yeah, the Jews didn't believe it, and the Pharisees here it it, it sees the so they said to the blind man, "What do you say about him who opened his eye?" Now, the the he or they said to the blind man is the Pharisee. So, the Jews then did not believe it. So, I think what we've got here is is a group of Pharisees, Jews, who are carrying this on, and there's a crowd of people because you'll notice here back in verse, get back up here to sixteen. And some of the Pharisees were saying, the man is not doing this. How can he do these? And there was a division among them. So there's a division among these Jewish leaders. Some believe it, some don't. Yeah. So the Jews did not believe it, that he'd been blind, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned him, saying, is this your son? Who do you say was born? His parents answered and said, we don't know that this is our son. Well, we know that this is our son that was born blind, but we, how he now sees, we do not know, who opened his eyes. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Watch this. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So these Jewish leaders and Jewish people have collaborated here, if you will, to say, hey, anybody gets involved with this guy, they're out. But no, what I want you to notice here as well is look at these words we know. We know. We know. It, it's over, it's it's in verse twenty, it's in verse twenty one, it's in verse twenty four. So the second time they called this man who had been blind, they said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We know, we know. Over and over again, verse twenty nine, we know that God has spoken to Moses. We know it, it seemed to me when I was reading through this, that, that one of the things that, that these people are doing is they're starting with a conclusion. We know. You know, that's not a real good place to begin. To start with a conclusion and then to manipulate matters to fit your conclusion. To say, we know this, we're we're down with this, there's no more information that we need. And I I say this to my students sometimes, there's there's a level of rigidity here that is not open to more information. It isn't open. I mean, there's a guy standing in front of them, they're talking to his parents and saying... Is this your son? Yes. Was he blind? Yes. He's seeing now. We know. How would it happen? We don't know. (laughs) Right? We're not going to get into this. Because the conclusion has already been reached. Anybody that gets affiliated with Jesus is being put out of the synagogue. Think about that. This is the conclusion that they've already drawn. I love what John Wooden says on this idea. And I think it's exactly applicable here. They've already drawn their conclusion about Jesus. Isn't it interesting? They don't seem to be open to evidence. They don't seem to be open to what's right in front of them. It's interesting. We sometimes, I think, close our minds down to say, we're going to draw a conclusion and say this. Here's an example. <clears throat> well, no, I'm going to go. Here's what John Wooden said He said this It's what you learn after you know it all that makes the difference. It's what you learn after you know it all that makes the difference. You know, I've had in my own life, I had a discussion like this in our Bible study on Friday morning just this past week. We're talking about joy. You know, that, that Jesus brings joy. And somebody said, well, can a person who's not a Christian have joy? A couple guys start saying no, and I say, "Well, I don't believe that. <laughs> I've seen it. Have you? I mean, I think sometimes we get a little wound up when the Bible says that the fruit of the spirit is love and joy, and we receive that from Jesus, and as a result of the spirit, are we to conclude that no one else on this planet can ever have joy?" not only sounds arrogant to me, it contradicts everything I've ever seen in life. I'm not saying that you don't have joy when you have Jesus. I'm not saying He may bring a, a, a deeper level, but, but I am saying this. I think we're nuts when we try to say that that, that statement concludes there that nobody ever has joy anymore, okay? So you've got to get with our group or you're never having joy. You think, hold it here. That's what these guys are doing. They've got a guy in front of them that's been healed from blindness. Okay, There's, It's incontrovertible. They're going to say, well, th- th- that can't have happened. It-, it-, it couldn't be. This person has to be a sinner. And, and it's interesting, he says, because the, the man says, isn't it amazing that-, that you don't know where he's from? And we know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing hears him, I- I'm telling you what you know already. Are you... Are your, are your conclusions about life and reality, are my conclusions about life and reality blocking us from reality? <clears throat> here's, here's what I was going to say. <clears throat> I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. I believe human beings are ca- totally incapable of saving themselves. I don't believe that that means that mothers eat their young. I don't believe that that doesn't mean that people that aren't followers of Jesus can't do anything good. I don't believe that. Now you may say, I'm going to find another Sunday school class, okay? <laughs> I, I think I think we've gone way overboard on things at times. It, it, it's right in front of us. And, and, and at times, if we're not careful, uh, we start with a conclusion that won't bear out and then we have to actually become blind in the process to keep our conclusion in. My dad said to me one time, he said, Cliff, you're like this guy. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Right? Don't confuse me with the facts. This rigid kind of conclusion. We know, we know, we know, we know. Is it it possible that we get blind when we start with a conclusion that we haven't even really thought through? Does it mean that because Jesus gives joy, That nobody else can ever experience it under any other circumstances. They're not a follower of Jesus. I I don't think that's true. I've seen it. Have you? Anybody seen that? I've seen it. Are are we doing ourselves some on damage? Are we becoming blind to people, to reality? Because we're going to start with a conclusion that no matter what you say or no matter what happens, we're sticking with it. We know, we know, we know. We know that God is not with this guy. Why? Because of what he did. Let let, let me finish this out so we can get to church. But the third one. Rigid commitments. This is the rigidity that, that in my judgment, blinds us. Toward the end of that, verse 33, If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. This, this is the the guy that's been born blind or been healed. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, "You are born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us." They put him out. Now, let, let me tell you. Look at verse there, verse thirty-four. Put him out of what synagogue? Look back at verse twenty-two. They already made up this conclusion. You line up with this guy, you're out. Now that's not a good thing. The idea of being outside the synagogue is essentially being excommunicated from the source of life. You're outside the synagogue, you're you're outside Judaism now, you're done. You're excommunicated would be the kind of language we would probably use. Because we have a conclusion that we've drawn, we or we've got we've got a rigid commitment. And and I you know, these guys worry me because I may have some of these same issues. Are you committed to the truth? And I'll I'll say it this way Are, Are you committed to the truth to the extent of no matter what it does to people? Are you committed to the truth to the extent that you don't really care what it does to people? Look what these guys say. Hey, man, we're the teachers around here. You can keep your mouth shut. We're the ones that know the truth. We're the ones that understand that. You were born in your sin. Now, here's what's interesting. For them to say that is because they have a commitment that they're going to be right no matter what. Do you know in Judaism there is no doctrine of original sin? Did you know there's no understanding that human beings are born sinners in Judaism? They're born with a good impulse called Yov Yetzer, and a, a, a bad impulse, Ahav Yetzer. And you just go through life trying to respond to either one of them. You don't have a sinful nature. You're not born in what? Sin. What did they say to this guy? You're born in your sins. <clears throat> it, it, it's, a, it's a bad thing, guys. And I, I face this, I think, particularly. Whenever we have the commitment that we're going to be right, no matter what. I'm going to be right. You can't teach me. You can't tell me anything. I'm going to be committed to what I believe and what I think. I was part of a small group. I went through a centered and I probably told you this, but one of the things that I said in my group was that I don't want to talk and I don't want to discuss things because I need to have times when I'm not giving my opinion. It can get dangerous. To where we think we've always got to be right. These guys aren't willing to be taught. They're they're not willing to allow this guy to tell them the truth. I say, we're the teachers. We'll do the teaching around here. Right? Is your commitment to the truth... And, and, you know, this is probably... Here's a word you heard a while ago. Dialectic. <laughs> but, but I've watched this in my own life. That truth sometimes can be used to crush people. Correct them to the point that it crushes them. It's the truth, all right. You know, malaria is bad. There's no good news in it. (laughs) But is our commitment to the truth, to help people, to help them grow, to help them develop, or is it just to be a truth teller? Marty uses that verse in Ephesians 4, 20 a lot. Speaking the truth. How? In love. I'm just fascinated by this statement when they say, who are you? You were born in your sins and you're teaching us so they put him out. Let me ask you this. How teachable are you? How teachable? Could someone who's a brand new follower of Jesus, or somebody's not even a follower of Jesus, teach you something? Are you, are you the kind of person that your commitments are not just to truth and not just that I've got all the answers, but to people? I was telling my table, I I've been teaching about 23 years and, man, it's getting tougher all the time. Because I know this is the truth. That people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? People don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. You can say, well, and I've said this, well, I care enough to tell you the truth. But it felt like you were getting blasted. (laughs) That's what it felt like. I was telling you the truth because I loved you. didn't feel like that. <laughs> you know. But, but this commitment. You see, we can become rigid because we lack compassion. Because our commitments really aren't to people. They're really not to release people, to help people. It's either to prove what we know or how much wisdom we have. Now let me finish with this idea, at least for us. First time I ever flew on an airplane was out of Dallas, Texas, a long time ago. And uh, I rode on Braniff Airlines. Anybody remember Braniff? Yeah, probably some of y'all worked there. I don't know. I remember I'd never been on an airplane before. And um, I'm flying to Houston. And my dad had let me out and said, we'll see you someday. And (laughs) I flew down there. The thing that scared me when I got on that airplane at first was, nobody told me that wings do this. Right? I'd only seen pl- a- a- planes on the ground. I- they only did this. And so we get up, and I'm a little nervous. you know. I, I got a few thoughts in my mind at this time about what's going on. And I'm, and I'm watching those wings do this. And, I- and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I don't want to appear stupid or anything, but uh, is that supposed to be happening? <laughs> when I got off that plane finally, I kissed the ground. I didn't understand that. But I did a little study sometime later about how airplane wings have to be flexible and rigid. There has to be a bouncer, right? An airplane wing has to have enough rigidity it doesn't break off, and it doesn't have enough flexibility that it falls off or just goes back. I've thought about that in my life with this matter about living the life of following Jesus. That that there really is, I'm not suggesting that we all just kind of throw the ball up in the air and say, let's all skate, you know. But but the idea of, of coming to some understanding that it's not just a commitment to the truth, but it's a commitment to the truth and how it might help and liberate people. And I'm one of those guys that drifts toward the truth. I'm one of those guys that say, hey, that's the truth and you've got to deal with it. I've watched it, that doesn't work well. It doesn't do that well. These guys, in my judgment, care little, if any, about this blind man. Do, do you think they care much about it? They they want to go home and be worried about did they keep the law? Did they? They don't want to think how did we, how do we treat this guy? How do we respond to him? How, I, don't, I don't think they worried about that. A, a drop. But I, but I want to ask you: Does that blind us then to the needs of people? Take it one step further. Be careful how our rigidity toward other people who we believe are not living right. Be careful about how this rigidity to the truth when people aren't living right in our understanding. They're not following Jesus. They're living sinfully or in sinful lifestyles. Be careful. I'm trying to say this to myself. Be careful that that rigidity doesn't set up where you begin to have contempt for them. you with me? Are you tracking? I mean, we see people doing things and living a certain way and acting a certain lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, or whatever they're spending their money, and then we develop contempt for them instead of a love and concern for them. You know what? If that was easy, we could all do it every day. But I hear people talk at times. And I've said it myself. Where somebody is doing something and living a certain way, instead of the truth bringing compassion to me, it brings contempt. Has that ever happened to you? Watch it. It will blind you. It will blind you to that person. It will blind you to people who need the truth. They need to understand who Jesus is. And what He's done. But it will blind us when we have contempt. These guys just have contempt for this guy. Their commitments are to their own truth and their own understanding. Instead of compassion. When I first was working through this, I I looked at this and I said, this is the kind of rigidity that evacuates compassion. It's gone. What about a person you know? Or a group of people you know? That you have come to the point that the truth of what you believe about the way they're living has actually created contempt in you. If that's happened, I want to ask you to consider this. I want to ask you to consider that there might be some rigidity that's coming in now that's starting to do what happened to these guys that actually blinded them. They no longer saw a suffering guy. They no longer saw a guy that needed help and compassion. They saw a guy who had been healed by a guy who broke the law. I think that'll blind you. I think it is blinding people. It's the way we talk. It's the way we see others. Don't let it blind you. Don't allow your commitments, if you will, to the truth to create contempt. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, this uh, flexibility and Rigidity is a hard thing to deal with. And we know that there are principles and notions that we hold dear and practices that we change over time. Help us to be men and women who retain an ability to be flexible enough to love and to care and be concerned for others and rigid enough to know and understand what You've told us and what You've communicated. If this would be easy, Lord, we could just do it naturally. But we find it difficult. So would You cause our eyes, our sight, to get clearer, less rigid, more flexible, to be able to be a kind of person that others would say, those people have been with Jesus. It's all over We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.